Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Well, welcome to Planet Pod with me, Jim Hayward. Regular listeners to our podcast will know that it's usually Amanda behind the mic with me as producer locked in a broom cupboard uh, along with the recording equipment. Well, Amanda's unable to be with us today, so it's my real pleasure to host this special episode as part of Planet Pod's Grantham series in which we'll be doing a bit of time travel back to the Pliocene era. And that's a period of the Earth's history from 5.3 to 2.6 million years ago. We'll be exploring what lessons we can learn from that time to help our response to climate change today. Well, we don't have a TARDIS. I'm afraid this studio is probably smaller on the inside than it is on the outside. But to help us get back to that time, I'm delighted to be able to welcome into the PlanetPod studio my guest, Professor Martin Siegert, co-director of the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and Environment. And Martin took up the role at the Grantham Institute in May 2014, having previously been director at the Bristol Glaciology Centre at Bristol University, where he's now visiting professor and also head of the School of Geosciences at Edinburgh University, where he now holds an honorary professorship. Very relevant to our discussions today is that Martin led the Lake Ellsworth Consortium, a UK NERC programme that designed an experiment to explore a large subglacial lake beneath the ice of West Antarctica. He's undertaken three Antarctic field seasons using geophysics to measure the subglacial landscape and to understand what it tells us about the path changes in Antarctica and elsewhere. In 2013, he was awarded the Martha T. Muse Prize for Excellence in Antarctic Science and Policy. And in 2007, he was elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. So no better person to be talking to us about the lessons to be learned from the ice. Martin, a huge welcome uh, to Planet Pod and thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. And I know you have a very busy diary, so we'll crack on. Can I kick off then by just asking you why is an understanding of the Earth's geological past so important in relation to the impact on climate change happening today? So climate change is happening right now, and it's a consequence of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere. Now, a lot of people who might be sceptical about that link might tell you that climate change has always happened on our planet and nothing to worry about. And and sometimes many geologists are among those who are making those um, points. And they're quite right to do so because Earth's climate has changed in the past. It's changed hugely, in fact, in the past. What's always associated with those past changes is the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so we can learn a lot by delving into the geological record back in time, understanding how the Earth's climate was different in the past, what made it different, and the link is always greenhouse gases, it turns out, and what that tells us about the earth that we are forming for ourselves by human activity. So one of the questions that has always intrigued me is how do we actually know what the uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide was? What were the temperatures were like? So as we start to go back in time, uh, let's start with a sort of recent um, uh, period. So we can go back about 700,000 years uh, and that's by ice cores. So Antarctica is in fact a time machine. You know, the, you go further down, dig below the surface, the ice that you might dig up was once snow and the snow fell uh, at a time um, in the past and it had a lot of air within the snow. And after about 70 years 
of that snow being buried by subsequent snowfall, the air within it gets cut off from the atmosphere above. And now you've got a time capsule of air. And as that snow and ice gets buried deeper and deeper into the ice sheet uh, and forms very dense ice, the ice contains little air bubbles. Uh, and those, again, are the time capsules um, of air. Now, you can go back about 700,000 years and pretty much every year between then and now by coring um, through the ice mechanically. You recover the ice and you can sample the air. It's not a, um, a record that you have to do many calculations on. It's an actual sample of the atmosphere um, from, say, 700,000 years and, and all times in between. So we've got a very, very good understanding about um, the last 700 or so thousand years of Earth's history by direct measurement of the atmosphere. And what it tells us is that when you have ice ages, and the last ice age is 20,000 20, years ago, but there were several ice ages in the last 700,000 years, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere is about 180 parts per million. 180, mm -hmm. remember the number. Mm -hmm. And between ice ages, as we are now, uh, and as we have been several times in the last 700,000 years, the, the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 280 parts per million. And again, we're very, um, it's very consistent. And the level of CO2 in the atmosphere before 1850, wide-scale international industrialization uh, began, was about 280 parts per million. And then we started to increase the level of CO2 in our atmosphere from that point to a time now where it's now um, over 400 parts per million. So that's a, a rapid increase. We haven't seen that amount of CO2 in the atmosphere through the entire ice core record going back 700,000, maybe even a million years uh, back. So we have to use, uh, so when was the last time we had 400 parts per million? Right. We're predicting your next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to use the, the rocks rather than the ice to take us back a little bit further. And as we go further and further back in time, there are, there are some more limitations to what we can actually do in terms of resolving it in time and also in, in specific value. But as far as we can tell, you go back using um, carbonates in particular and other sediments uh, to about 4 million years ago, say in the Pliocene. And that's when the, the Earth at last had 400 parts per million. So we can understand that and we can try to um, work out what the Pliocene was like because that might well be the Earth of the future if we keep CO2 levels to, the, to what it is right now. And we can go further back in time as well, but I'm sure you'll ask me about that you know, a little bit later. So... If I'm right, then, the, what happened in the Pliocene era when we were at 400 parts per million or there or thereabouts, uh, even though that's a very I mean, that was a very long period of time, and that's, as you say, 5.3 to 2.6 million years ago. So I shall be able to answer the university challenge questions uh, on that one. But uh, that, was the, that was the time when we had 400, the last time, effectively, we had 400 parts per million concentration of carbon in the, in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But what you were saying as well, so that gives us a window into that sort of that, that period that gives us an understanding of what things might be like on this planet now that we're at that sort of, we you know, we've reached 400, well, that's it, was it today? Is, yes, I think four, it's about 415 or something. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, it's frighteningly, it's going up all the time, isn't yeah. it? But what you're also saying is that between 20,000 years ago and 10,000 years ago, we went from 180 parts to 280, and 280 was the kind of the level that we were at for sitting quite comfortably and getting used to how to live, you know, in, in the way that we did, all the agriculture and the biodiversity mm -hmm. that we've got, et cetera. But then in the industrial, you know, the industrial revolution came along, and whoa, we went from 280 up to what we are now. So an unprecedented rate of increase in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah, it's important to note that the 
it, it did start to increase from about 1850. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the increase was quite slow to start with. And then it picks up. And so it, the level of CO2 increase in the atmosphere starts to accelerate. And it's really accelerated after the Second World War. And since the 1960s, roughly, we've, we've put in, all of us on this planet, have put in about 100 parts per million in, in roughly 50 years. Right. Uh, and that's frightening because if you think about what the ice cores tell us, uh, 100 parts per million is the difference between an ice age and an interglacial. And it took the Earth about 10,000 years mm. to do that through natural processes. We're going to do it in, in 50 years, you know, mm. 200 times quicker. Now, what does an ice age to interglacial trans... What does 100 parts per million give you climatically? Well, sea levels globally rose by about 120 metres in that 10,000 years. It's about 1.2 metres every century. And the temperatures increased by about 4 degrees centigrade, double that in the polar regions. So that's what 100 parts per million can, can give you. And again, we can look at, as you were saying, into the Pliocene and think about what 400 parts per million of CO2, what, what does that give you? Okay, so pretty frightening stuff, really, if you think, you know, in terms of the implications, if we go back and we sort of make a, an assumption that what happened in the Pliocene and that equilibrium that was reached is kind of what could happen today, if we would reach that equilibrium. So the question, I suppose, is how long would it, how long does it take to reach equilibrium? Question number one. Yeah. Question number two is, well, we're at 400 now, 414, 400, there or thereabouts, but actually, unless we do something dramatic, which, you know, obviously we all hope that every nation will do so within their plans, their abatement plans, and every individual and every organization will do something to be able to achieve, you know, that reduction that we need. But we're going to, you know, the chances are we're going to increase. And so we can talk a little bit about you know, the, the momentum or the inertia in the system maybe that would be quite interesting to understand. So I guess the question there is, is you know, you know, how long does it take for equilibrium to be reached? And therefore, what can we actually do to, you know, avoid that? So the, so the first thing to say is that equilibrium is very difficult to achieve because it's, Earth is a, is a complicated series of interconnected processes feeding off each other. And so you can argue that it never really is a, a achieved. But right. you have a stability, uh, maybe, rather than, a, than a, an equilibrium. But there is some variability um, uh, about that. And you're quite right that it's very difficult to consider uh, an equilibrium condition when we're changing things all the time. So we, we're not doing that. But let's just pretend that somehow we, we stop emitting um, carbon dioxide levels, or we keep them at the, at the are right now, and, and 400 parts per million stays in the atmosphere and it doesn't increase, it just stays there. So the amount of solar forcing, solar warmth that, that, that we will retain in that will be equilibrated relatively quickly over a few decades. But it's not the only process that's um, important here. The oceans are a great store of heat, but they take a lot longer to, to respond and transfer the heat around the planet. And the ice sheets, they take a lot longer to, to change as, as well. So I mean, think about it, if you've got a nice warm bath and you put a, a block of ice in it, the ice doesn't melt immediately. It takes mm. some time, it takes a lot of energy actually to melt ice. And so that's what happens as it's doing that, it's cooling the water. So there's a feedback process uh, in, in, in that. And what we understand from the glaciology and what we understand from the ice age is that these things can actually take some centuries um, to, to resolve uh, fully. So that tells us that what we're doing to the planet now, we, we might not see the full effects of this century. It might be that later on uh, we start to see it. And sea level is a very good example of that. 
we think at the moment with if we limit global warming to 1.5 degrees that's another half degree warmer than it is today because we're one degree warmer than we were roughly 1850 um we're locked in to another say one meter of sea level change and that mm. one meter might well be realized this century but it doesn't stop it at 2100 it's likely that the sea level will, will, will continue to increase um uh, further on and we're very worried about some particularly vulnerable parts of West Antarctica in particular, but also Greenland and some parts of East Antarctica. And again, we can look into the past to give us a guide on, on which bits of the ice sheets are most vulnerable and which parts of the ice sheets have changed when the CO2 was last 400 parts per million. And how much further back in time do we need to go in order to be able to understand what, okay, so 400 parts per million in the Pliocene era or epoch, what a, how much further back do we go? Well, actually, not very, not very long. Uh, so, so the last interglacial was the Eemian. That was one hundred and twenty-five thousand years ago. And so it's not particularly far back in time. Right. It was just the last time that we were between ice ages, mm -hmm. and then the CO two level was very similar to what we have now. But to answer an earlier question, we sort of arrived at a different equilibrium to what we have at the, at the moment. Sea levels were three to five meters higher mm. in the Eemian and the temperatures were a little bit warmer, one, two, three degrees warmer than they are then. So, and that's a consequence of, of those interconnecting processes just arriving at a different different point. We think probably half of the Greenland ice sheet wasn't there. So the southern part of Greenland was probably melted and uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet was probably smaller than what it is. And that's how you arrive at the sort of three to five meters of, of sea level equivalent. So just, if you can, mm -hmm. describe you know, how, how life was perhaps you know, at 400 ppm and how, what, how life might be if we, even if we were to maintain the equilibrium level of 400 ppm uh, out to 2100. So the first thing to say is that the Pliocene is not an event. Right? As you rightly said, it's a period. And so when we think about the Pliocene, we have to think about it in those terms. But it's often quite important to consider what the high points are, you know, what the high stands are during the Pliocene. And there are some startling figures. So what we can be looking at is three or four degrees of warming from where we are today. And remember, that's, a, that's the difference between a glacial and an interglacial cycle. And 20 metres of sea level rise, and 20 metres of sea level rise basically says there's no Greenland ice sheet anymore. So Greenland's now as an ice sheet's gone. Uh, there's no West Antarctic ice sheet either, so that's gone. And chunks of East Antarctica are, have probably been deglaciated as well. And, and they, therefore you have 20 meters of sea level. What does that mean to the planet? Well, Florida's it's underwater, mm. the Netherlands are underwater. London, where we are, that's underwater as well. Many, most of the of the uh, cities, you know, um, low lying cities on the planet, uh, they're submerged right, in, in that situation. Um, the weather patterns will be different as well because the the huge effect and influence that the Greenland continent has, you know, it's a big island and it's got a huge ice sheet. The mean elevation of Greenland as an island is over two point two to two point five kilometers above sea level. And that means storms simply don't go over it, right? They, they edge around it. And that's why the North Atlantic is so important. But if Greenland's not there, there's huge implications for the weather that we start to receive. So these are enormous changes mm. to, to, to weather, uh, sea level, and the way that we can possibly live on the planet. It might take centuries to do that. It could take thousands of years to do it. But what the geological record tells us 
is that when the CO2 level gets to concentrations like they are at the moment, mm. that the planet's natural um, uh, conditions respond in that way. Okay. So slightly gloomy predictions, really. Well, yes, of course it is. And, <laughs> I mean, and, after all, and, we are in a and, climate and, emergency. So well, it's, well that's it's right. I mean, these are, I, I, I'm not the only scientist to talk about no. these things. But what's remarkable sometimes is, is when we um, talk about climate change in the context of the past, um, even people who are really determined and aware of, of climate change um, become surprised. Uh, by by this, mm. and uh, this is important lessons about the past. I mean, the Earth has preserved records of that change for us to um, investigate. And so, quite lucky actually that we have these yeah. these analogs, yeah. and there were several of them uh, in in the past. And it tells us that when you change the CO two in the atmosphere, right, don't expect the climate to stay the same. It won't stay the same. Right. Can I just talk a little bit about? the scenario where we go to 1,000 ppm. Sure. Okay, now I mean, 1,000 ppm, for most people, they'll say, well, that's crazy. You know, I mean, we're, you know, there's no way we can possibly reach 1,000. But I guess there is every way we can reach 1,000 if we continue on the trajectory that we're currently on. I mean, again, look, looking back into to, you know, the, the geological history of the, of the planet many, many millions of years ago, what you know? What can we learn from from how to deal, and can we deal with a thousand ppm? And I mean, is 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 the Earth genuinely uninhabitable at a thousand ppm? It's not uninhabitable, but as we were saying earlier, the the way that we live on this planet has been developed in a world with two hundred and eighty parts per mm -hmm. million by and large. And what we're doing is conducting a weird experiment to see if we can live on it <laughs> in the same way with a different CO2 concentration. Yeah. Right. The, the answer, there is an answer to that, and it's no, we can't. No. Right? And it might take some decades or some centuries to arrive at the destination, but it will be a different one to where we are right now. And you're quite right. The sort of If inaction is our future, and we simply don't take this seriously enough, and we keep putting CO2 into the atmosphere, it won't take too long, 100 years, maybe a bit more than that, before we reach 1,000 parts per million. Mm. And we have had a thousand parts per million before, but you've got to go back about 50 million years. And uh, it was very different in those. There was probably no ice on the planet at all. And so that's like 60 meters of sea level equivalent right around the planet. There's no ice, no East Antarctic ice sheets, no Greenland, no uh, uh, West Antarctic ice sheet, no small glasses, no ice anywhere. Right? Mm. It's just too warm. The temperature is probably 11, 12, 13 degrees warmer than they are today. So very difficult to live in. Some places will be uninhabitable. Mm. Now we have uninhabitable parts of this planet, right? You can't really inhabit Antarctica, for example, right? That's why no one lives there unless you're in cozy stations and nice warm tents and things. As um, possible, we'd be able to inhabit Antarctica in a world with a thousand parts per million, ultimately. But there will be some parts of the planet that are inhabited now that won't be inhabitable. Mm. And, and what do we want? What do we want? What type of future are we are we looking for? Right? Because it's in our hands. We can design and we can shape our future. We we know that the past is telling us that when you change CO2 to these very high levels, the world responds to become very different to what it is at the moment. And it's mm. it's really not a debating point. And that's that's just sort of basic physics and and really um, cursory inspection of the geological record. Well, right. It's quite clear. And the, but the choices are ours, aren't they? So on that 
on that, in that vein, I mean, we want to be positive. I mean, we've painted a potentially quite a, not a gloomy picture, but a, a realistic picture of what could happen. And we've got evidence from the past which says, okay, well, you know, this is what we're likely to experience, speed it up almost, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we don't get our act together in terms of reducing emissions and getting cutting the, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. What can we do? What practically can we do? What technologically can we do to address the issue? What's your view on that one? <laughs> it's a small question. So there are many things we can do, of course. And um, it's very easy to, to get pessimistic about mm. this situation with that very difficult message that I've just provided, right? Um, but you can't ignore it either, right? It's, it's a message that is, a, is a, a real one and we have to accept it. And if it means that people get galvanized to, to take further action, then, then that's good. I mean, if you become pessimistic, about the future, then there's only one outcome for the mm, future yeah. and that's gonna be a bad one. So we have to be optimistic. There are things we, we can do. There are things which are, we, sadly we are locked into. So further warming is inevitable. And that's why people refer to 1.5 degrees rather than one degree. We're already one degree warmer than we were in 1850 and we're locked into at least another half a degree. But we can restrict global warming to that, to 1.5 degrees. And it means that we have to decarbonize the way that we live by about the middle of this century. It can be done. It, it requires a huge effort. It requires the work of you and I and people, and it requires businesses to understand it. It requires governments to understand it, universities to understand it. You know, the skills of the future are gonna be different mm -hmm. to the past. And it needs a huge effort. But I'm convinced that we can do it. And, um, and a number of things give me optimism. And one is that there's a public understanding now of this in a way that maybe 10 years ago there, there simply wasn't. So things have happened quite quickly in those 10 years. Actually, 10, 10 years is a, is a good chunk of time to appreciate the, the changes to, mm. to society. You know, who would have thought that um, the cost of uh, renewable energy, electricity, would come down so much in, in 10 years? Who would have thought that every single major car manufacturer would now be planning and developing their electric vehicles hmm. because 10 years ago they weren't right and this has changed and, and it's changed not because car companies have suddenly become enlightened to this issue it's changed because people demand it hmm. right and that's a great thing right that shows you that that people generally care about this issue want to be sustainable governments are starting to take action don't know a lot of governments get criticized and it's kind of our job as people to criticize our governments right that's a healthy thing to do but the UK government, going back to 2008, has a, a legally binding obligation to reduce its carbon emissions. And it was 80% of the 1990 values by 2050. And then Theresa May last year increased that ambition to 100%. Mm. We, will, mm. we have a legally binding commitment now to um, take our carbon emissions in this country to zero, to net zero by 2050. And so... I'll be surprised that last week that, <laughs> that the Heathrow expansion was deemed to be illegal because it wasn't compliant with that scenario. I think that's an amazing positive A real outcome. result. Yeah, yeah because it, what it tells us is that you can't have a piece of legislation, legally binding commitment for net zero by mm. 2050, and then every other decision the government makes or is, or is involved in is, is blind mm. to that. Of mm. course it isn't. It, it's linked to it. And what it tells us, which I'm really pleased about, is that every large-scale infrastructure investment has to be compliant with that zero-carbon future. And, you know, everyone has to wake up 
Yeah. It's, it, we, we're, we're in a serious situation. We have mechanisms now, government mechanisms. Businesses are starting to get this. What was it Sainsbury's just the other week pledged their commitment to zero, zero carbon? Many companies are doing this this now, and it's great to see more is needed. But I'm sure more will follow. And I think that's, I mean, for me, that's one of the exciting things about, particularly about this series of, of podcasts with the Grantham Institute, is the opportunity to, you know, to do our little bit to spread the word and, and you know, engage a whole range of different people in that, that argument. The challenge, I, I, mean, I mean, there's lots of challenges, but, you know, people are still flying. People are still saying, well, it's okay because I'm just going to offset. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pay some money and we're going to plant some trees. We know that, you know, any tree you plant, I mean, it's great. Yes, of course it does sequester carbon, but it takes, you know, a long time for a tree to grow and blah, blah, blah. So in some respects, you sort of think, well, okay, it's kind of a bit of a sop, isn't it? You know, you, you fly, you know, your in, you know, intercontinental flights and so on, uh, or transatlantic flights, et cetera, and you plant some trees and you feel good about it. But actually the root cause of, of you know, the root challenge is, is to not fly at all. Or, and then you say, well, all right, well, how practical is that in terms of, you know, businesses, transactions, and so on and so forth? Uh, and are we actually saying everybody's got to stop flying because they can't travel anywhere and we've got to put on hair shirts and so on? So what, mm. what would you say in response to that? I mean, and, and, I mean, is it realistic to say we can decarbonize all, all of, or every part of our economy? Do we, do we literally have to do things in a very, very different way from the way we're doing it at the moment? So we have to look at our lifestyles and um, appreciate that um, there's nothing normal about our lifestyle mm. in, the, in the Western world. You know, we're, we're very lucky. We've got a lot of money to spend on things that we, we want to. And a lot of those have carbon consequences. And we have to understand that. And travel, of course, is a, is a major one. And for individuals, if you fly a lot, that's going to be a huge um, part of your personal carbon budget, right? You're absolutely right. Um, offsetting through planting trees probably is not the solution to it because the carbon emissions are immediate and the carbon reduction that you offset might take 30 years mm. if you plant them on a tree. And there's all sorts of other implications about what types of trees are you planting? Are you are you just planting the same trees in places where trees don't like to to grow? Are you absolutely confident that those trees are actually going to live and not, and not die? Um, if you plant them in the wrong soils, are you emitting more carbon dioxide than you're actually absorbing? All sorts of questions come out. And this is a, a nuanced issue indeed. And you probably need someone on who is um, a trees and forest expert. But we're just writing another briefing paper on well, this. And we're, we're, I'm sure in a, a future <laughs> podcast, you'll, we'll, we'll have this for you. Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, but you're absolutely right. That, that offsetting is not there. But I like to think about it this way. The, we've normalized our existence you know we think the way that we live our lives is normal and it isn't right it's it it we've no one no humans have ever lived a lifestyle in the way that mm. that we're living and as i said previously the last 50 years have resulted in a in a hundred parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere so we're all guilty of this this mm. is this is all of us our society has delivered that change and we know from the past that that will cause major problems to the way the earth works and the way that we w will live on it and so you can't divorce one from the other. You can't mm. say, well, I'm going to continue living the, the way that I want to on this planet. And I also care about climate change because yeah. those things are inconsistent. And that does mean we have, we have choices to make. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy our lives on this planet, but it probably does mean we're going to have to do things very differently. Yeah, no, that's, a very, I mean, that's a really important message I get across, get across. And one of the things we're really keen to do, as I said, on Planet Pond is to be positive. Uh, at the same time, I think, you know, you can't shy away from the fact that we're facing a really, really, Indeed. really serious issue. Okay, at the end of this year, uh, you know, the UK is going to be hosting COP26, Conferences of the Parties, um, in Glasgow. 
what would you what message would you get across well, I might tell them about this conversation that we're having now because you're recording it. It'll be quite easy to do. So, yeah. so the <laughs> podcast can go straight into their ears. Um, but in terms of a message, what we want to get out from, um, from Glasgow, um, later this year is, well, the United Kingdom and a few other countries have got a, a, a legally binding pledge for, for zero carbon. We need to see more countries coming up with a pledge to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions to to net zero. It might be difficult for some countries to have that by 2050. And I think if we if we were to get some international agreement on net zero by a date, I think that might be quite difficult mm. to achieve. But in a, in a general term, to get an international agreement to raise ambition to net zero, right, sometime this century. If we were to do that internationally, I think that would be a major uh, achievement, preferably by the middle of this century. But but as an outcome, that's really what we're striving for, I think. Um, do you feel that the present government uh, understands the science or puts enough uh, store by the science, but the sort of you know, the work that you're doing and work that your colleagues are doing, particularly at the Grantham Institute, of course, but... Do you feel that there's enough understanding within government circles about what you know? What are the implications of what your, of your research? And- sure. Well, the evidence is just last year when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued their 1.5 degree report, and it was Claire Perry, in fact, that mm. um, launched that in London at Imperial College um, with the Grantham Institute. And uh, ten months or so later, it was t- Prime Minister Theresa May that, having taken advice from the Climate Change Committee to see how the United Kingdom can reach net zero, because that was the recommendation in the IPCC 1.5 degree report. She accepted those recommendations and, and committed the United Kingdom to that. It had to go through Parliament because it was an alteration to the Climate Change Act, but it was passed with a big majority. Mm. So if the question is, does Parliament, does government get this? Well, the evidence from, from last year is pretty good, in, in fact. Yeah. And you, you talked about business, you talked about Sainsbury's as an example, I and mean, then obviously there are a number of, of others. Uh, but again, how closely are you able to work with, you know, with the, you know, the business sector in terms of helping them to understand that this is actually, if they turn it on its head, this can be a real business opportunity for them because it's a, it'll either differentiate them from the competitors or it'll help them to be more efficient and so on and so forth. Yeah, there's a couple of things at play on there. One is that, <clears throat> you're quite right, that the businesses of the future are going to have to be different to, to the past. And for some, that's an opportunity. For some others, that might be quite a difficult um, thing, thing to realise. Um, but there's another thing that's at play here, and that's leadership. And that's understanding that the future is different. And if, the, if your business model is not compliant with um, a net zero future by 2050, then frankly, your business is in trouble. Mm. And you might not know it now. You might not appreciate it. You might not care about that now. But it, it kind of looks rather inevitable that if you're running a business that has a really high carbon footprint, and you don't do anything about it, right? And it's not compliant with with a legally binding obligation for net zero by 2050. Then I think your company is going to be in trouble. And now the best thing to do is to start to form a plan mm. to take that company into a different place and to start thinking about it now. Which I think is is absolutely the right message, and certainly is one that we would you know we're, we're trying to get across to anybody that we you know we either work with or or uh, you know listening to the pod. Do you think that legislation in regard to company law is sufficiently strong at the moment in terms of, incur- I mean, there's legislation which requires, uh, but, you know, obviously, a particular size organisations, uh, commercial organisations to declare, you know, their, their material impacts. Do you think it's strong enough? So Mark Carney, really, Bank of England has made a, a, um, a big difference um, in the financial and business mm-hmm. sector. Mm-hmm. 
um, to, to think about climate change disclosure. So what um, risks, uh, what problems financially do, do companies hold um, when for climate change? And if you're, if you're contributing to this problem, then you need to disclose that to your um, uh, potential um, buyers of your shares. Because if you disclosed it, they might make a different um, uh, uh, decision on whether to buy your shares or not. Uh, and so valuing companies now has to have this as part of it. I think Mark Carney was, was quite good not to make that binding. It's voluntary mm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. But that's also quite good, isn't it? Because what have you got to hide? Why would you not want to do that sort of thing if you're, if you're appreciating that the, the need for reducing your carbon emissions and you've got strong, appropriate leadership in mm. your organizations, then you're in a good place, right? Yeah. But if you haven't got those things, you might not want to disclose it. But I think people will find that out quite quickly. Yeah. And the other thing to say is, is that, you know, who would have predicted a few weeks ago that the Heathrow expansion plan would have been turned down on the basis that it wasn't compliant mm. with net zero by 2050? I think that's a, it was a wonderful outcome. Mm. And I think it's a game changer for in not just infrastructure, but lots of other things. You know, what we've asked ourselves quite a lot since 2008, what actually does legally binding mean? Mm. Yeah. What does it mean? Well, actually, maybe this is what it means, right? It can be challenged if you do something knowingly that has a, a negative outcome, right, in terms of carbon emissions into the, into the future, that's not compliant with, with our legally binding commitment, maybe that's illegal. Yes, I hope so. Absolutely. It'd make a big difference if it was. Uh, absolutely. Well, we, we, we've had various conversations recently, particularly with uh, colleagues at the Bar Council, about the law as a superpower and, and trying to help people understand that actually, you know, the, the law is there. I mean, some people see the law as an impediment to, to business. Some people see it as a, uh, well, it's just, okay, we've got to comply, but let's just stick at, that, stick at that. But, you know, what we're trying to get across is actually, you know, used in the right way, it can make a huge, huge difference, I guess. Uh, let me just ask you a couple of questions. You know, we'll sort of probably draw to a close shortly, which is a sad because there's so much that excites me about this, as well as, you know, it frightens me, but it also makes me very, very positive about how what we can do. But in terms of briefing and briefing papers, and, and you've written an excellent briefing paper, which I've had a good fortune of being able to read before this uh, this podcast, um, in draft anyway, uh, to what extent is that available to, if you like, members of the public? Is it is it really for a closed academic group or is it for general consumption? So all the science that goes uh, into it, it has been done before. So it's not new science. What we're trying to do is translate the scientific messages uh, in a language that everyone can understand. Mm. That's what the ambition is. And that's what all the Grantham uh, Institute briefing notes and papers try to do. All of them are available on our website. All of them are free to access. Um, and you can just find them with a couple of clicks. Fantastic, and we'll make sure those links are on the on the Planet Pods website as well. Uh, we always close with a sort of kind of a call to action, or we ask our guests to give a call to action. I mean, you've given several calls to action, I guess, but it, I don't want to sort of put you completely on the spot and say, "Well, okay, so what should we all do?" But because uh, there's lots of things, but you know, are there some particular things that you would suggest that individuals ought to sort of go away, have, having listened to what we we're talking about, just to, to ponder on, and maybe things that they could change in their own lives. Uh, and then if there's anything else you think would be... Well, I'll give you 10. Okay. Right? And, the, and, the, and the first nine are straightforward because they're in the Grantham Institute's nine things you can do Excellent. to help with climate change. Excellent. You can find it on our website. It's been very popular. They themselves, and they're small things like um, eating less meat, mm -hmm. right? thinking mm -hmm. about your investments, um, flying less, contacting your MP, things like that. Mm -hmm. The things that everybody can do. 
and they can they can make a little difference themselves are not going to solve this problem but they get people to think about this issue uh, and get they get people on a journey to to become more environmentally aware and responsible and the the tenth thing which wasn't in our nine things right. so I don't think it was in our nine things <laughs> uh, and that is um, skills so I, right. I'm in a university and we're we're thinking about the future universities are agents of change mm-hmm. right that's we're here to change we haven't done a very good job because we we are agents of change then we haven't changed the planet in the right direction and we need to get on and start working in a slightly different way. And so I'm very interested in thinking about the skills that we need in in the future, which may well be different to the past. And at Grantham Institute, we run a program with our our colleagues in our business school. It's a climate program. As far as we can tell, it's the only business school that has a climate program, which is crazy because if we were talking earlier, the need for business to accept this issue and to, and to decarbonize themselves, every single business school should have a climate program. So if there's one thing I would try to change, it would be that our climate program in, in Imperial College Business School is really successful, mm. it's extremely popular. Why hasn't every single business school got one? It's crazy, they need to have one. So uh, maybe a big call out to anybody from a business school that's listening to this, and, and we've got contacts as well. And, uh, well, you know, I'm never 100% certain, but I, I've said this loads and loads of times that, that we're the only business school that has a climate program. I've never been 100% certain that's true. Well, I've never been corrected. Well, lots, of, lots of sustainability, yeah, good, and they yeah. should do, because that's very important as well. We haven't really touched on sustainability mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. but that's really important. But climate change, we're talking about how business works to get to net zero, and then after yeah. that, you know, that's slightly different to sustainability. It's kind of two sides of the same coin. I can get, I understand that, but the, with a laser focus on decarbonisation, right? Business school should be all over this. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a challenge. Then, if anybody's listening that's uh, representing a business school or got any connection or actually at a business school studying whatever, uh, get in touch with us if you feel that your uh, your school's curriculum. Uh, covers climate change adequately and that uh, you know it's factored into the business thinking and the business leaders of the future get and uh, we've done you a disservice get in touch uh, and we'll make sure and i'll apologize can, if well, that, what a great position to be in to apologize for something which actually should, should be the case but yeah. martin thank you so much Pleasure. for being with us today um, i hope that i've done amanda uh, proud by standing in for her and uh, i must admit it's a different experience for me but um, it's fantastic really and i was i was absolutely fascinated to read the briefing paper and i do hope that people who read it will get as much from it as i did and i now know a lot more and i'm much more, much better clued up in terms of sort of being able to explain to people why is this uh, why really is this something that you know for all sorts of reasons we, should, we need to uh, need to take seriously so thank you so much for your time um, and it's fantastic to be able to have the chance to, to meet you and to talk with you. So thanks very much. Indeed. Thank you. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.